Hi, I'm Jackie Miller, certified divorce coach and divorce transition and recovery coach, as well as the host of Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Join me as I interview Anne Grant, family law attorney and author of the book, The Divorce Hacker's Guide to Untying the Knot. We will discuss issues important to those who are either considering divorce or are in the midst of one. Anne sheds light on the divorce process and shares her stories and expertise to help guide you through this challenging time. Hello, Anne Grant. How are you? Very good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me today on Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah. Let me tell everybody a little bit about you first and your background, and then um, just so, so we know who we're talking to, who we're lucky to have here today. So Anne Grant is a family law attorney and author of the book, The Divorce Hacker's Guide to Untying the Knot. She started her family law practice to help women like our listeners navigate the legal minefields and outsmart the system so that they can get to a new and better life as fast as possible and with their sanity intact and money in the bank. Um, Anne received her Juris Doctorate degree from the University of San Diego School of Law, where she graduated cum laude in 1991. While there, she served as editor of the San Diego Law Review. She obtained her undergraduate degree from Brigham Young University in 1984 and was the former editor of the Women Advocate Newsletter, the official publication of the Women Advocate Committee of the litigation section of the American Bar Association. Anne practices in Manhattan Beach, California, and you can find her on the web at annegrantlaw.com and find out more about her book at thedivorcehacker.com. So welcome again, Anne. Thanks, Jackie. So first of all, I want you to tell us how you ended up in family law, because I know a little bit about your background, and I know that's not the kind of law you first started out practicing. That's right. Jackie, I didn't aspire to be a family law attorney. Um, I was a corporate litigator, and so was my husband at the time. And about 10 years ago, we went through a very high-conflict divorce. It was very difficult for, on both of us and on our three children. And I realized that there had to be a better way. And that's when I started my family law practice here in Manhattan Beach. Our firm's mission is to not only get people through their divorce, but to actually help them create a new and better life as they work through it. All right. I, so tell me who your average client is, if, if there is one. Yeah, so there really is. Um, I would say the average profile of the clients that I enjoy working with most are those who are mindful and who really don't let their emotions rule their decision making. Um, and that is why I love working as a team with our clients as well as financial advisors and divorce coaches like you, because we really like to employ a holistic approach to get the best results. There's just a whole lot more to this process than getting your divorce judgment. It's an opportunity to really recreate yourself. And as you and I know firsthand, you can make your life even better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I And so along with that, talking about the client and the attorney, I know when divorcing a difficult personality, um, my clients have you know, said, come to me, one of the first questions, how do I find the right attorney? Because it is so important. When you are divorcing someone with a cluster B personality disorder, you know, one of which is narcissistic personality disorder, when you're interviewing your attorney, 
you need them to not think you're the crazy one. So many outrageous things happen during the marriage and, you know, probably during the divorce. So you need somebody who can sort of understand what you've been through, know that it's serious and not exaggerated, and then know what's on the road to come ahead because it's probably not going to be an easy road. So what advice do you have for folks that are looking for an attorney in this situation? What should they ask that attorney when they're interviewing? Those are really good questions. Um, you're absolutely right. Particularly if you're divorcing someone who is a narcissist, um, you need an attorney who has some experience with that. And you need to really like strap in and buckle up because it can be a bumpy ride. So um, I actually, in the book that I've written, The Divorce Hacker's Guide to Untying the Knot, I have a whole section that includes the top 10 questions to ask your divorce attorney when you're interviewing them. And I've also created an app, the Divorce Hacker app, because I know that often, um, particularly women might be nervous when they're interviewing attorneys. And so um, all the questions are in the app. Um, what you wanna find out essentially is about the attorney's experience obtaining positive results for their clients um, whether they have experience dealing with narcissistic spouses um, and what you can expect to pay and how long it's going to take. So for example, one of the questions you want to ask is, you know, how long have you been practicing and what percentage of your practice is devoted to family law? And again, you're looking here for an attorney that's um, specialized and has been doing this for a while. This is not an, an area of the law that you want a, a lawyer who's just dabbling in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also want to ask whether um, the lawyer prefers to negotiate and settle or go to court. Um, you want an attorney who's looking for ways to solve problems, not escalate disagreements. But when you're dealing with a narcissist, you have to set really clear boundaries. And oftentimes you do need to go to court in order to do that. So you need an attorney who really has the skills and experience to obtain results in the courtroom um, and, and who has the skill set to do that. Um, because oftentimes we will file whatever we need to in court, go to court, oftentimes, you know, get a great result. And then we can negotiate against that to resolve the case effectively and efficiently. Um, and then you want to find out how available the lawyer is um, that you're hiring to work on your case. Um, most attorneys work with a team and, and you do want that. You don't want all of the work to be done at their high billing rate, mm. but you do want to be able to reach the lead attorney when you need to, um, to answer your questions and to discuss strategy. Sure. And then you want to ask, um, how long does your average case take? And if the answer is five years, run. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. Because that is one danger when you are um, in a divorce, high conflict divorces, it goes on and on and on. And to one of your points, the statistics say that most divorces settle, which is great. However, I would venture to guess that the risk of it going to trial is when you are divorcing somebody with like narcissistic personality disorder because they are set out to scorch the earth, not to make rational decisions, but to just win at all costs. And so you need an attorney whose goal is to try to keep you out of court and you know keep things as calm as possible. But if it does, and it often does, or even all those times you get drug into court before trial, 
you need somebody who can litigate and can go against their attorney and call them on all their BS. So yeah, they really, you need to have an attorney that hopefully you don't end up in trial, but if you do, yeah, can really represent you well. It's true. And there are many attorneys that practice um, a different approach. They're very um, mediation oriented. Mm -hmm. And, but, but I think to your point, when you're dealing with a narcissist, um, they will employ all kinds of tactics to try to wear you out. Mm -hmm. And particularly, um, you know, for women, they, they, you know, sometimes will throw up the white flag and surrender. And so you do need someone who is able to go to court and stand up for you and get results. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's how you send a message that, you know, you're not messing around. Sure. And, and the lawyer then also needs to know when it's appropriate to um, resolve things. Yeah. Yep. And that's good. And, and that's why it's once you do find the right attorney, you do really need to listen to them <laughs> because they've been, you know, it's maybe your first, hopefully not more than your first, maybe your second time doing this. And it's, yeah, they, they're going to know better than you. But in addition to that, I also tell clients, know the personality of your divorce. And I like to say that a lot because some end up more custody driven, some end up more financially driven, um, is who you're divorcing. Uh, you know, if for instance, say it's, it's the woman and she's been stay at home mom and you're divorcing somebody who is a W2 guy, I call them. So they were, had an employer, they get their W-2, they, you know, you, when you file your taxes, it's somewhat clear what the income is. And then you have your sort of more messy situation because the spouse was self-employed and there are LLCs on top of LLCs hidden by more LLCs and shadow come. It's just, it can get really crazy. And so I think that's another thing to really explain to any possible attorney is the, the, what you think the personality of your divorce is going to be. That is critical. That's a really good point. Um, and so in the situation where a husband is self-employed, for example, um, there's a lot of room for mischief. And we do see that quite a bit where assets can be um, hidden and um, you know, there's all kinds of shenanigans that can be employed to manipulate their net income, which is relevant to uh, the amount of support that you will receive. And so we see all kinds of nonsense happening in those cases. And those cases are more heavily litigated often mm. um, because, and often you have to retain a forensic accountant to conduct an investigation in order to determine um, where the money is. Yeah. And you know that is the conversation that should be happening right at the get-go with your lawyer because that's going to cause your case to be more protracted, perhaps more um, litigious, and probably more expensive. Sure. And, you know, on when interviewing the attorneys and considering that, uh, you mentioned something really interesting in your book because there is a statistic that mostly women file first. Um, and then you actually speak to that and the advantages of filing first. So, anyone out there who's sort of listening to this podcast and considering it, you're thinking your spouse might be filing soon, you're considering you actually talk about the advantages of filing first. So would you explain that a little more? Yeah, we just had this come up yesterday uh, for a new client. She came in and as I spoke with her, came to realize that uh, based on what she was telling me, it was likely her husband was going to be probably filing and have her served uh, in the next couple of days. And so we encouraged her to file 
and have him served the very same day. And that's because we wanted to set the venue of the case. So the best bad example I have of this um, is what I'll call the case of the soiled woman. So um, Catherine and Bill were in marriage counseling because of Bill's numerous affairs. And during counseling, Catherine actually admitted that she'd had a brief fling. Catherine didn't file. She was dragging her feet because Bill was a successful businessman and she didn't want to lose the financial support. Meanwhile, Bill filed for divorce in Idaho, where he had established residency after living there for six weeks. Now, since Idaho is a fault state, the judge found that Catherine's affair caused her to be a soiled woman and actually ruled that therefore she did not get spousal support. Um, but if Catherine had filed first here in California, she would have been entitled to significant spousal support since California is a no-fault state. So that's, I think, the best bad example I can think of as to why uh, you do want to file first. Not to mention, it sets the tone, you feel empowered. It never feels fun to be served and surprised. Yeah. So. It, well, and on that note, it, and again, going, keep going back to having the right attorney, when you're on the offense, mm -hmm. uh, and you can really only understand this when you're in the midst of a divorce, when you're on the offense, it just, I can't tell you how much better it feels, right? Than being on the right. defense and trying to play catch up or you're running around trying to explain yourself or, or you know, dispel lies or myths or things that they're doing. So filing is sort of the first step in feeling like the offense, I think. And then your example is incredible because A, I didn't realize you could file in another state. B, uh, you know, talk about somebody who's done their homework. Did he go to a state where six weeks, is that like the minimum time in any state in the country? It sounds like that you can establish residency. I mean, wow. Who, who you know? Yeah. Who so it varies. It varies from state to state. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a pretty um, extreme example of the risk that you run if you drag your feet. I mean, I have other instances of cases where um, there was an incident where the gal that I represented, she came to me after she'd been mar in marriage counseling for, I don't know, over a year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the husband was showing up and pretending to be um, participating in trying to uh, mend their marriage. But actually what he was doing throughout that time was um, he had a whole double life with a woman in Brazil. And um, once she retained me, we found um, the fact that they had been married in Brazil and he had been siphoning off their assets during that time. And um, so, you know, by waiting, um, nothing good came from that. And sadly, I do see this happen rather often. I, and I also feel that, you know, once you know that your marriage is broken beyond repair, I think just energetically, it's a good idea to rip off the Band-Aid and move on. That's just a really yucky place to be in. A lot of us have been in that place. Um, and, you know, it's a very personal decision. But, but I think women need to know there's a lot of mischief that can occur if they're showing up and trying to do the right thing and their, their husband or spouse isn't doing that. Sure. And so I don't want people to panic, however, that maybe did not file first and are listening to this and they're thinking, oh my God, did I just, you know, lose the ball game because I didn't file first. So, and again, and I think you touch on this also in your book, like don't panic mm -hmm. if you didn't. So what do you have to say to those folks that maybe did not file first? Um, 
you know, immediately, as soon as you get served, um, take a look at the, at the divorce hacker, which talks about how to find a good lawyer, the questions that we just went through, um, and immediately don't wait because the clock is running mm -hmm. and you must file your response within 30 days. So don't be frozen, start interviewing lawyers, find the right lawyer and, you know, you'll be taken care of. Sure. And now, um, again, just going back to, uh, sort of my ignorance in the process and when I've talked to my clients and literally not understanding how this works, when you have filed and you need to serve your spouse and they are someone that is going to be shady or toxic or scary when they get served, um, I know that there are some sort of tactics you can employ. And first of all, maybe talk a little bit about the legality and other, about like you can't just hand them the divorce, you know, papers in terms of being served, um, some possible strategies for serving them. Um, I have a client that her husband pretty much caught wind that she filed and left town for a week, nowhere to be found. I mean, and we're going to get to this in a minute, why it's important to serve them as, as soon as possible, as you just mentioned. But then I have another one who didn't leave town, but oh boy, was slippery could not get a hold of him to serve him. I mean, got into his car in the garage, opened the garage door, drove to his office, the gate shut behind him at his guarded office, went inside, even to the extent had the security guards tell the server that his office didn't exist in this building. And they got back in his locked car, drove home, shut the garage door, and literally couldn't be served for weeks. So, so what are some tactics and why is it important to serve them right away? Okay, so uh, that's a good question. There are a couple of different ways that an individual can be served. And let me walk through sort of how the process works because for most people that haven't gone through this, there's no way they'd know this. Mm -hmm. So once you prepare, your attorney prepares the um, paperwork, it goes down to court, it gets um, processed by the court system and then it comes back and you, the um, client cannot serve your husband. So it has to be someone else who's over the age of 18. Um, we'd like to employ the least aggravating method of service because we're always trying to keep things to a dull roar. Mm -hmm. So um, you can serve someone by mail. And in a case where you're not anticipating that you're going to be dealing with someone who's you know, engaging in some of the behaviors that you just mentioned, that's a perfectly um, viable way to serve someone. But they have to be cooperative because they sign paperwork and send it back. So in the situations you've described, which often arise when you're dealing with a narcissist, those are the situations where we utilize a process server. And we've done all kinds of things to stake out um, the individual who's being served. Um, and we have all different kinds of mechanisms. We have access to um, process serving companies. We know people who guys on motorcycles, like there are any number of things that can be done um, mm -hmm. to try to serve someone, but it, it can be tricky. Sure. Um, and, and serving the divorce papers is one of those things that is going to set the tone for your disillusion. Um, I always say that, again, in an effort to minimize the acrimony, if, for example, you are in counseling, marriage counseling, and you're dealing with someone who's a bully, 
that's a good opportunity with a neutral third party to tell him that he's that you're moving forward with the divorce um, and and to minimize some of the conflict. So it really is a very case specific analysis. And one mm -hmm. of those things that when you're working with your lawyer at the very beginning of the case, we spend a lot of time with our clients mm -hmm. trying to understand the personality of their spouse so that we can decide together what is the appropriate way to go about having him served. It's not a one size fits all sort of um, analysis. Sure. I know. And it sounds a little bit like I said, talking about motorcycles and staking out. So it sounds like a movie. And I think that's often so hard for um, the person on the other side of this, on the other side of the narcissist to grasp, because that is frankly why I named this podcast out of crazy town. I like to say the person with a cluster B personality just sort of lives in crazy town, has had an address there for a long time, is you... <laughs> living there you've been forced to move there and obtain this zip code that you want nothing to do with you're not comfortable living there <laughs> it's not fun for you and yet you have to go there sometimes to deal with this and so but you know our goal right is to get them out of crazy town so that that was sort of the impetus behind the title but it's it's true it's just sometimes you have to implore tactics that seem like things they would do but so I just want people to know again out there listening deep breath. If you have a good team that's supportive, they're going to just do the right things, you know, whatever it takes. And, um, you know, just don't be surprised <laughs> if you get some suggestions that sound like you're in a scene out of a movie, but yes, all that true. And so with that being said, I think another fact that is little known is when they're served that day, isn't necessarily what the court goes by, what um, in terms of when your marriage was over. So in other words, I'm trying to get to the date of separation. Can you explain what the date of separation means and why it's so important in your- Yes. So the date of separation is a very important date um, because anything earned or acquired before the date of separation is community property and typically divided 50-50 in California. Anything acquired after the date of separation is separate property and belongs to the spouse that earned or acquired it. So for example, we had a case where uh, Saturday morning, the wife was sitting at the computer um, checking email, husband walks in, husband was the CFO of a bank and uh, taps her on the shoulder and says, I'm leaving. And she thought he was either headed to the gym or he was gonna go pick up bagels. Uh, until he said, you need to hire a lawyer. So she showed up in my office. Um, she's pretty shell-shocked. But over the course of um, a relatively short period of time, we sleuthed around and realized um, that he, in fact, had voluntarily left the bank and was about to take off on uh, an expedition around the world with his girlfriend. Um, and, and then what transpired is his lawyer, um, we found out that he received over a million dollars the day after he moved out as um, a payout from him leaving, a severance pay. So um, his lawyer argued that it was his separate property because it was one day after the day he moved out 
the move out date being the date of separation. Mm -hmm. We of course were able to argue um, to the judge successfully that because the income was earned during the marriage, it was community property. But I think that that is a good example that illustrates the importance um, of when the date of separation is. It's kind of a line in the sand with respect to how assets can be divided up and mm -hmm. also how earnings are distributed. So the date of separation um, in California is determined by uh, a number of factors. It's a subjective analysis, but as in the example I just gave you where someone moves out and leaves, that will typically be deemed the date of separation, even though that's separate from the date that the divorce was filed. Mm -hmm. um, also, if there's been a breakdown in the marriage and as you know, often happens the parties are living in separate parts of the home and not sleeping together anymore. Um, and that could be deemed the date of separation. So it's sort of a, it can be sort of a gray area. And sometimes cases have trials about it because of there, there can be a tremendous amount of, of money at stake. And that's, that's why I want listeners to really understand that because I do have a client that the husband moved out, you know, a couple months before, but they still haven't filed. And so I had to explain to her, you need to start looking at all your finances, you know, in terms of separating them the day he moved out, because, you know, if you're planning on filing, that's when the court freezes basically a snapshot in time and try, tries to look at the assets to divide them. It's not when you filed and you know that I, that comes at such to such a surprise to so many people because I keep I think they just kind of keep going through thinking well we haven't filed yet so things are kind of still you know there's still the joint checking there's still the so it's really something for people to think about I agree 100% they need to understand that yeah yep absolutely um so also there's a section in your book uh well you talk a lot about this in your book but if you you're divorcing someone with a very difficult personality like this you're not going to be um you know a stranger to being bullied because it's probably been happening during your marriage and unfortunately you could probably take whatever happened in your marriage and multiply it times 10 for how they're going to be in the divorce so um, I know you've already given us a few examples. Um, what advice do you have for people that are going to be in this situation when they're divorcing? Right. So bullies do not respond to pleas of fairness or reason. They'll twist your words around because the only thing that matters to them is regaining control of what feels like an out of control situation. Mm -hmm. So um, don't plea for understanding and fairness because that's not going to work. What does work is setting clear boundaries. Um, and what I mean by that is most people believe that setting boundaries means being confrontational and assertive, but that does not work with the bully or the narcissist. The more you confront and assert your position, the more you play into their game. It's a game for them. Yep. So when you're setting boundaries with the narcissist, you need to refuse to communicate unless it can be done in a manner, manner free of conflict. Um, free of manipulation and disrespect. And you may have to insist that all communication is by email. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can let it be known that you will not respond to any communication that dismisses or belittles you and your needs. Yep. And I, that is so important because what you said very early on when we were talking on this podcast was 
you work best when clients can sort of let go of that emotion and, you know, come with a sort of level head, which sounds almost like an oxymoron, a le- you know, level head divorce with a narcissist. But the point is the best advice I ever got. And when reading your book, you say the same thing. If you can find a way to treat the divorce like a business transaction, it is so, it's so calming. First of all, you feel like you have power. It's almost like the clouds part and the sun comes out and all of a sudden you have all the answers because if your ex comes to you and says, don't hire an attorney, I'll tell you what, I can just hand you, I'll write down everything we have and I'll show you what you should have and what I should have. You could calmly say with no emotion, that might be a great deal, what you're proposing. However, it's the biggest financial decision of my life and it involves the most important people in our life, which are our children. There's, if this were a business transaction, there's no way you wouldn't consult an attorney. You don't know what you're talking about if you're, unless you are a divorce attorney. So it's, it's a very logical response to them to thank you for that suggestion. I am going to consult an attorney. I'm not an expert on this. That might be a great proposal. I'll take it to my forensic accountant or my accountant. I will show it to my attorney. And this might just work out great. But no, it is not a good idea not to have an attorney look at your information or any proposal they make. And and nine times out of 10, they do try to get rid of your attorney. They don't want you. This is is such an important point. And I think it can't go, it can't be overemphasized. So I think we as women very much want to do the right thing. Oftentimes we just want it to be over. We don't want to have to hire a lawyer. And I see this happen again and again. And I went through this myself <laughs> where the back pattern you just described plays out of, oh, we don't need to get a lawyer. And you know we've all heard about conscious uncoupling. And so sure, yeah, we'll, we'll just resolve this with a mediator, but mediators are neutrals. So they are not representing you. A lawyer should have your best interest at heart. That's their job. And uh, you never need that kind of support more than when you're divorcing a narcissist. Your friends are well-intentioned. Your Aunt Martha from Chicago, um, you know, who got divorced in 1983, probably really wants to help you out. But You really need a skilled lawyer who lives in the region, the geographic region where you're getting divorced, who's looking out for your best interest. Because if you're divorcing a narcissist, this is a battle for him Mm -hmm. or her. I mean, they just, they will twist your words around because the only thing that matters to them um, is winning. And they will throw you and even your kids under the bus um, in order to try to have a victory. I just had a a gal walk into my office the other day who's seven months pregnant um, and her husband um, filed for divorce and is claiming that the fact that he had an affair is all her fault. Um, I mean, this is ridiculous, of course. And yet he's going, he's like smearing her all over social media and everything else. Mm. And so that, you know, I, I think that even now in the current situation with the shutdown, we are seeing that what before was, you know, we were seeing a lot of shenanigans. It seems like the the bar is even, um, I don't know if it's lower or higher, but the, it's, right. it's gotten worse. 
Right, right. What, what they're willing to do. And the tactics are endless. Um, one of my favorites that you talk about, and it's just brilliant. And I hear this time and time again, because financial abuse is rampant, both in the marriage and then during the divorce um, with someone with narcissistic personality disorder, but you've actually coined the phrase SIDS in terms of sudden, suddenly income deficient spouse. So it's, and it blows my mind because you can have couples, right? They were very affluent living these, you know, very luxurious lives. And literally the day a divorce is declared, they have no income. Money's gone. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you have to, it's not funny and you have to laugh because it's so ridiculous. So tell, tell me more about like how that happens or how they try to get yeah. I've had a couple of cases recently where, you know, the husbands are driving around in their $100,000 cars, living in their uh, home by the beach where the rent's $10,000 a month. And then they show up in court claiming they have virtually no income, um, which kind of is astounding. Like, I honestly do not know how you can pull that off with a straight face, but I'm seeing this happen quite often. Mm -hmm. So what we see is that when, you know, spouses realize, a spouse realizes that divorce is a possibility, they can become very uh, crafty and self-protective of their finances. Um, and they can do all kinds of things to manipulate their income um, because that is of course relevant for the determination of spousal support and child support. And we talked about how if you know, the primary wage earner owns a business, there's really a lot of room for, for mischief. He may artificially inflate his expenses um, to reduce his net income, or he may even stash money with relatives mm -hmm. um, or friends to underreport his earnings. Um, and so, you know, that's where you need a team. Uh, often you need a forensic accountant um, to help do the investigation of where the money's gone. Mm -hmm. You probably need a certified divorce financial analyst to help you figure out how you can hopefully maintain your lifestyle with regard to whatever you can be expected to get out of the dissolution proceeding. And then I think the divorce coach is critical because it's just so absolutely maddening. Um, I mean, you know, when you're dealing with a crazy person, they can make you as crazy as they are. So um, that's where, you know, as you talked about before, having a support team to help you manage your emotions so you can look at this like a business decision is absolutely critical. It is. It is. And I think that uh, and I think that this may be a new concept for a lot of people. But in talking as a divorce coach, I know it's been so helpful for women and men to sit down and decide what's truly important to them so that right out of the gate, they have a goal. And when they have that goal and can bring it to their attorney and everything operates around that goal, it sort of helps, again, all the shenanigans fall away and what, because you think I'm not going to chase that down and over explain myself for this crazy lie he or she's telling, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't need to spend 10 years chasing down a possible bank account with $10 million overseas in it. I, my goal is to have what I need and, you know, take care of my kids and move on. And so I think a coach can, can help you really keep that in focus. And then your attorney is going to help you execute it and your CDFA. And I know it sounds like a lot of people to hire, but we've seen time and time again, it actually saves our clients 
so much time and so much money, um, you know, because they're so focused and so efficient when they have a plan and, and they feel like they're being heard and, you know, all the shenanigans are being addressed or being discussed as something that we don't even want to pay attention to, right? So, so I agree. I think that, that all of those roles can really help an individual. And it, it, with that being said, I know one thing that's come up when I speak with clients a lot, and it, and it happened to me, and I believe you may have even mentioned it happened to you, the family home, for example. It's something that's so emotional in, in many divorces. And uh, again, in, in the scenario, we kind of keep talking about a lot, but say there's been a stay-at-home mom, it's the house you've raised your kids in. You, the last thing you want is for them not to be in their own bedrooms and their own beds. And so you, a lot of us had this goal to keep the family home at all costs. And you mentioned this in your book, and it was so eye-opening for me. But I guess for anyone listening out there, before you turn off this podcast, because you think I don't understand you, <laughs> I want you to know that sometimes moving out can be so liberating and a new chapter in your life. And so uh, it, just the freedom and the, the ability to make new memories and leave the old behind. And so what are your comments on the family home? It's... It's really true. Um, I was reluctant to leave our family home, but it actually ended up being one of the best moves that we made for me or I made for me and the kids. Um, it's really important to evaluate the financial repercussions of staying in your home right? so that you can make the smartest business decision given your situation. Um, and this is where the divorce coach and the certified divorce financial analyst really help. Um, the, the financial analyst can actually run various scenarios and, and it will show you quantitatively whether it makes sense for you to stay in the home, to sell it, or even defer the sell. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, there are cases where, um, it's a situation where mom can stay in the house with the kids until the last child heads off to college and then the house is sold. And if, um, you're at a time period where real estate is appreciating as it has been for a long time now, that's a win-win for everybody. You have stability for yourself, your kids. And then when you sell the house, you split the net sales proceeds with your husband. So whenever you can negotiate a win-win, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. um, but if that's not an option and the home needs to be sold as um, was my situation and often occurs, it really is an opportunity for a fresh start. And I'll tell you, there's just nothing better than having your own place, starting from scratch, making it your own, um, and, and just, you know, having only positive energy. Mm -hmm. And I found it was a game changer for me and my kids when we went through this process. It was a major downsize. I didn't want to do it at first. And it was one of those things that when I went through it, and I do talk about it in my book pretty extensively, um, I was surprised at just the how our lives took off because the bad energy was gone sure, sure i and i did have a very similar experience and again i'm certainly not pushing anyone to say that they need to sell their home or move out but i love that you just gave the example for instance of you know maybe um 
the the woman in this case, or was a stay-at-home mom, stays in the house till the ch uh, last child goes to college. There are lots of different scenarios to explore, and I guess that's all I want to put out there. And it's just one example of many issues that come up uh, during the divorce. And I could sit here and talk to you all day. In fact, Anne, I'm going to invite you back because there's so much to discuss <laughs> um, and so many great ideas. And I really want everyone out there listening. I know it is so scary. It is um, overwhelming and to go through this process and you're not alone. There are a lot of us out there that just want to help you. Uh, we're here for you. And it's, it's, you know, a difficult process for everyone, but you will get through it. And so on that note, I have a question for you. And I ask this of all of my guests because I want everyone out there to know that there is hope and they will get through this. What is one thing from your perspective that they have to look forward to when they get through this divorce process? You know, it's never too late to start anew. We're here to experience and enjoy life. And the time is now. There's an energetic movement of support that you and I are both part of. Um, and I want your listeners to know that they're not alone. Life can be good again. And it's absolutely time to take back your power. I love it. Thank you so much, Anne. Again, you can see more and find out more about Anne at annegrantlaw.com and see more about her book. And I highly encourage you to read it, thedivorcehacker.com. It just has a lot of great insight and suggestions. So please, please check that out. And Grant, thank you again for being on the podcast, Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jackie.